Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Today, as we continue reading and studying through Luke, we're picking up again in verse 27. Uh, last week, if you were with us, Andrew Davis did touch on verses 27 and 28. We're not going to repeat what he said. Hopefully, you were there. Uh, hopefully, you heard. And if not, it should be on uh, the website if you want to hear it again. Uh, but verses 27 and 28 really are a hinge for two halves of what is one larger scene in Luke's gospel. If we were watching Luke's gospel in a film, uh, it would begin uh, where Andrew began last week in verse 14, and the same scene would run to the end of where we'll read today, verse 36. It really comes in two halves, and, and that center portion there, verses 27 and 28, tie these two halves together. And so we're going to read them again so that you see them, so that we remember where we've come from. But we are going to be studying today verses 29 through 36 as we see Christ uh, returning uh, to this theme of a sign and a generation that is seeking a sign. You can find our reading today on page 870, if you picked up an ESV on the way in. Luke chapter 11, beginning to read in verse 27, and we will read to verse 36. And before we read God's word together, please join me again in prayer as we seek his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we pray that you would shine the light of your gospel into our dim lives. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and hands to do all that you have commanded, that we would come to you and hear and keep your word. Give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and grow us in your holiness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Read together now uh, as we find it, God's word in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. As he, that is Jesus, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed, but he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light." As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together. Well, about two generations before uh, men like Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens, about two generations before that, the most prominent voice of atheism was a philosopher by the name of Bertrand Russell. 
among other things, Russell was known for his book that came from a radio address, sort of the, the atheistic C.S. Lewis, if you will, uh, known for his book, Why I Am Not a Christian. In that book, he attempted, as many before him had attempted, and many will continue to attempt, uh, he attempted to weaponize unbelief and to turn it against the church, to have a sort of polemic or an apologetic for not only why he was not a believer, but you probably shouldn't be a believer either. And you don't have to have read Russell to recognize his argument. He was once asked uh, what he would say if when he died, he were to stand before the God he rejected all his life. And he famously replied that if that uh, unlikely scenario were to happen, his response would be, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Well, you're familiar with that position. That's, that's the worldview. Those are the waters in which we swim. It's the materialism that we interact with every day. Those that say you shouldn't and you can't believe anything that can't be observed and replicated and quantified and verified uh, in scientific terms. Another generation before Russell, W.K. Clifford, summarized the same approach. He said, it is wrong always everywhere and for anyone to believe anything on insufficient evidence. You may want to ask Clifford uh, what evidence he has for such a bold claim, but that's, that's for another time. Now, but this is the worldview that we interact with. This is, this is what we know uh, from the world around us. And often when Christians try to answer this worldview or interact with this worldview, we sink to the lowest common denominator and we also begin to play the evidence game. And so maybe somewhere uh, in your Christian journeys, you've read a book like More Than a Carpenter or The Case for Christ, evidence that demands a verdict. And so we set up the volley and the issue gets uh, pinged and ponged back and forth and the, the skeptics begin to stack up their, uh, their objections and the believers cite all of their proofs and they have their list and we, we just sort of kick this issue back and forth hoping that the other side is going to be convinced by the evidence or maybe the lack of evidence. Now let me say before I go any further that that is a valuable thing. There's a good uh, value for believers in knowing what you believe, why you believe it, knowing how to answer those who ask the reason for the hope that's within you, says Peter. It's a good thing to, to be able to answer objections, but I think we also need to realize that most often the problem of unbelief does not come down to insufficient data. That's not the core issue. It never has been, and it likely won't be in the future. And that means that piling up arguments and proofs for the existence of God is not the key to conversions. New life in Christ is the key to conversions. The, the work of the Spirit in the heart of unbelievers is the key to conversions. That's because many people, when confronted with legitimate evidence about Christ or Christian claims, simply choose not to believe. Consider the crowd that walked with Jesus. We saw last week Jesus drove out a demon and a man who had been mute for years perhaps began to speak and everybody saw it. Nobody denied the evidence. In fact, the entire uh, conflict that we saw last week from this earlier portion in Luke's gospel was that nobody could deny what had happened. They had to find an explanation for the miracle that was right in front of them and so they came up with their own ideas and some said, he's in cahoots with the devil. 
Others said, not enough evidence, Jesus. Why don't you give us another sign? Why don't you show us something else that will convince us that you are the one that you say you are? Well, their unbelief wasn't because of a lack of proof. Very often, neither is ours. More often, unbelief stems from the implications of what our lives would have to look like if the claims of Christ were true. What would it mean for our worldly ambitions if Jesus actually is who he says he is? What would we have to believe about ourselves, about our lives, about our relationships in the world? What would it mean uh, for all of our hopes in, in this life and in the future? What implications do, do the claims of Christ have on us and if they are true? So you see, faith is as much a matter of the will as it is a matter of the mind. It is a spiritual problem more than it is an intellectual one, and that's why the, the chief command in the New Testament is not to be convinced by the evidence. That's a good thing, perhaps. But the chief command in the New Testament is to believe in the gospel. It is a spiritual issue, or, or perhaps, as Jesus says in verse 28, the chief command, the real need for us is to be able to hear the word of God and keep it. Today, in our passage, Jesus is going to shine a light on the sin of unbelief. He's going to show us a little bit of where it comes from and, and how it works and just how dangerous it is. But he's going to come around to the end uh, to teach us how to combat the sin of unbelief in our own lives. And so as we study these verses, I want you to consider three aspects of unbelief. What we're going to see here is that there are two things that Jesus condemns in the passage before us. There's one thing that Jesus commands. Two condemnations and, and one command. The first condemnation that Jesus makes in this passage is that Jesus condemns all superficial sign-seeking. Superficial sign-seeking. We see it happening in verse 29. tells us that when the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. In effect, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to acquiesce to your demands. You can keep asking for signs all you want. I'm not going to give you what you think you want. I'm not going to give you the evidence that you think will satisfy you. Now notice that Jesus is saying that this desire for further evidence is not just an isolated incident. He says this is a, a wickedness, an evil, the word is in the Greek. A, a wicked generation, an evil generation. This is a wickedness that is characteristic of their entire culture. This is a worldview problem. This is simply the way the Jews approached Jesus and his ministry. You can read it all over the New Testament. We see that Jesus preached a sermon, uh, Luke chapter 4. Jesus preached a sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, and, and he told them what was in their hearts. In their hearts, what did they want? They wanted him to do for them what they had heard he had done in Capernaum. He came with a message, and they wanted signs. They wanted evidences. They wanted some verifiable proof that they could point to. John chapter 2, Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, and, and it says there, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? John chapter 6, he fed the multitudes on the mountainside, and again they demanded, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? He, he just did it. And they want something else. He just fed the people in the wilderness. They said, Moses fed our fathers in the wilderness. 
And what do you do? And here are 5,000 people plus women and children. He's just fed them and they continually, it doesn't really matter what he does. They always want more and more evidence. That's the way that Jesus was received by his people. They always demanded more. They refused to be convinced no matter what evidence he produced. And so what if here and, and with this man who was released from the demon, what if Jesus had produced one more sign for them? Would they have believed then? Would they have turned? Would they have said, oh, now we see, now we get it? What if he jumped through one more hoop? Would they believe? Of course not. You see, their unbelief wasn't about the evidence. It was about the implications. Jesus had just told them in verse 20, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There are implications for what he's already doing and the evidence he's already given them. You see, if Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom, then that means he's the king. And that means that they have to submit their lives and their intellect and their religion to him and to what he says. Calvin says it this way. He says they wanted to appear to have a good reason for rejecting Christ. That's what they were doing. They were exhausting every possible option to put away the idea that he might actually be who he says he is. And so they throw up another obstacle, another red herring, some other diversion to take away the idea from the main point is he who he says he is? Well, then give us another proof. That's what we want. We want you to give us what we think we want from you. And folks, this is the way it happens very often in unbelief. It's certainly the way it happens among many unbelievers. The most distasteful thing about Jesus typically is not what he says about himself, but what he demands of us. If his word is true, then we have to submit to him. If his word is true, then he calls us to crucify ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him, to crucify our desires and, and our intellect and our relationships and our sexuality and our words and our schedules and our vocations and every aspect about our lives. If Jesus' word is true, there are incredible demands who would believe him. Incredible demands for those who would believe him. And the easiest way to avoid the demands of Christ is to convince yourself that you don't need to listen to him in the first place. You don't need to submit to him until he meets your criteria. That is the way unbelief often works. It's also the way that it works in many believers. It's the way that it still hangs on there by a thread, even though we try to mortify it and kill it over and over again. We rationalize the sins we know we ought to abandon. Why? Well, because we're waiting for some, some divine work, some, some supernatural pizzazz to make obedience more palatable to us. We know what he says in his word. It's painfully clear. God tells us to flee sexual immorality, but we say, you know, I don't want to install that internet filter because I think I'm going to wait and see if God makes those sins a, a little less attractive without external constraints. I don't want to admit that, that I need something else. I'll wait for the Holy Spirit to change my heart rather than for me to change my actions. God's Word tells us to do all things without grumbling or complaining, and, and yet we find ourselves, rather than uh, rather than confessing our hardened hearts, we find ourselves praying over and over again, 
Lord, would you just make my situation easier to bear? Then I wouldn't be grumbling all the time. Would you do something for me? That's the way that we do it. It's foolish, but, but these are the spiritual games that we play. We say, if God will meet me halfway, then I'll go where he wants me to go. And it's wickedness. It's unbelief by any other name, and it still smells as rotten. It's the same way that it works in the unbeliever, it works in the believer. We want to set up our demands, and here are the hoops that we want God to jump through for us before we will follow him. And Jesus is telling us that sinful people who make demands of God are not going to receive the sign they think they're looking for. They're certainly not going to receive a sign that makes Jesus easier to believe rather than harder. What does he say? This generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. We don't have to waste too much time wondering what he means by the sign of Jonah. We could go to Matthew chapter 12, the parallel passage there, where, where Jesus makes it clear. He says there in Matthew 12, verse 40, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he's talking about his death and he's talking about his burial. That's part of the sign. But then he goes further. Notice it back here in Luke. He says there is a sign, but it's not for the fishermen who threw Jonah into the sea, is it? It's for the Ninevites who saw Jonah after he was vomited up by the fish. And so it goes further. Here's the pattern they ought to be looking for. Here's the sign that they're going to receive. It's a pattern of death and burial and resurrection preaching. And Jesus says, watch out for this, because that's going to be the sign, actually. Not something easier for you to believe, but something harder for you to believe. And he says, Jonah was a foretaste, but Jesus is going to be the reality. As a side note... Rabbit trail. We'll come back. As a side note, notice the way Jesus reads the Old Testament. He does not say, you know that story about Jonah? It's a myth. Don't worry about it. He says, remember Jonah? Yeah. He was pointing to me because it was true. Back to the main point. So Jesus says, here's Jonah, and he's a foretaste. Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Jesus is going to be swallowed by death itself. Jonah was delivered when the Lord commanded the fish to spit him up on dry land. Jesus will be delivered because, as we read today, it's not possible for the grave to hold him. Jonah was the rescued preacher who grumbled over the conversion of pagans. Jesus is the resurrected Savior who sends out his people to make disciples of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Jesus is saying the only sign you're going to receive is the sign of the resurrection. After he has been rejected by the Jews, after he's been handed over to the cross, he is going to be raised by the power of God for all to see. And probably we sit here and we say, that's, that's wonderful, isn't it? What better sign could there be? In fact, if we're Christians at all, it's because we believe in Jesus' atoning death and resurrection. His death in our place and the fact that God raised him is a vindication that he is the righteous one who could bear our sin. What a wonderful thing. The sign of all signs, the sign that gives us hope, as Paul says in Romans 6, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What more wonderful sign could these skeptics receive 
What more persuasive proof could they see? Maybe when that sign is given. Maybe when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Maybe then they'll come flocking to him and believing in him. And certainly some did. We're reading through Acts chapter 2 right now. And when we come to the end of Peter's sermon, many will be converted, but not all. In fact, not even most. Read Matthew chapter 28. And you'll hear about the priest who paid a sum of money to bury the truth of the resurrection. And he says this lie is still being told down to this day. Read further in Acts, Acts chapter 4, and you, you hear of another miracle done by the apostles. A verifiable evidence of power at work. And they say, we want to know more about this. And they say, it's, it's through Jesus whom God raised from the dead that we've healed this man that you see. And what do they do? They warn them. They upbraid them. They tell them, don't speak any more of this Christ who's resurrected. We don't want to hear about this. We don't care about the miracles. We want you to be silent about this. Why? Did they disbelieve because of a lack of evidence? Did they need more proof? No, they didn't. Not for lack of proof. In 2004, Anthony flew... Uh, become, became a theist. He was another one of these uh, very outspoken atheistic philosophers, another Brit. For much of his life, he was on the same trajectory as, as a, a Russell or a Hitchens. At the age of 81, he declared that the empirical evidence for a creator constrained him to change his position. He didn't become a Christian, actually. He, he only became a deist. But he did write later, he, he said that the evidence for the resurrection is better than for the claimed miracles in any other religion. It is outstandingly different in quality and quantity. And the Jews could say the same thing. The Jews of Jesus' day could say the same thing. And yet for many of them, the resurrection became the sign that hardened them rather than softening their hearts. Why? It's as Paul wrote. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, two opposed worldviews, and yet they're both looking for something, and when the gospel goes forth, it doesn't help either one of them out, does it? Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Those who make demands of God in order to believe his word are not going to receive what they think they want. Instead, they will be pointed to the sign of signs, the crucified and resurrected Savior, the one who offends people who want God to acquiesce to their reasonable arguments. And so, dear friends, beware. Jesus pronounces a judgment on those who refuse to hear and keep his word. He denounces the wickedness of those who make demands of God before they will submit to him. Jesus condemns superficial sign-seeking. That's our first point. Secondly, though, as we continue reading, we see that Jesus also condemns hard-hearted hearing. Jesus condemns hard-hearted hearing. We see this showing up where in the next two verses, Jesus is teaching us. He's making the point that what his hearers actually needed was not to see something spectacular, but simply to receive the message that he was already teaching them. And he uses two examples, also from Israel's history, to show them 
what it means to respond with soft hearts rather than with hard hearts. Consider verse 31. Jesus says, verse 31, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, it's hard to imagine something that would be more provocative for a Jewish crowd than that statement. This is a well-known story. Everybody, everybody could rehearse it. Everybody probably thought very fondly of this story from back in 1 Kings chapter 10. It was about the heyday of Israel's past. It was about the expansion and the glory of God's kingdom on earth. You can go back, and, and I hope you'll read the details all over again. You'll see that it happened at the time when Solomon was at his zenith. Uh, when the kingdom of Israel was growing and pressing beyond the borders, expanding into all the areas that the Jews had not yet taken over, but now they are under Solomon. It was the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. The temple had been built. The palace had been built. Solomon and his fame was spreading far and wide. And the scriptures tell us that the queen of Sheba heard from her kingdom far away of all that the Lord had done in Israel. She came to see if the rumors were true. She came with a, a very great crowd. She came with, with servants and with camels and with spices and with gold. She came to see if what she had heard about Solomon was actually true. Was he really as wise and as rich and as blessed as she had heard? 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 5 says that when she saw all of his wisdom, when she saw all of his grandeur, and tells us there was no more breath left in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land, and the words in your wisdom. And blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you upon the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. And when the Jews would go back and read 1 Kings chapter 10, they probably had warm, fuzzy feelings about this story. Oh, how they longed for the glory days of Israel. When the nations would come in and see all the wonderful things that God has done. Oh, what they wouldn't give to relive that Jewish glory. But there is a sting in the tale of Jesus' statement. Did you hear it? He's saying that Gentile women are more receptive to the wisdom of God than this group who was listening to him right there. Actually, we don't know where, where Sheba was. Two pretty good guesses, or maybe Ethiopia, maybe Yemen. Uh, but whatever, wherever they were, the statement is true. It says she came from the ends of the earth. A pagan woman without connection to Israel. She, she traversed over mountains, maybe over deserts, maybe across rivers. She came with a very great crowd so that she could simply take it all in, just so that she could hear. And here are these men. And the word, by the way, is men. It's not humankind. It's not mankind. The word's not anthropos, but andros. He says this queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment against the males of this generation. He's twisting the knife as he says it because she came to listen. She came to hear the message and the wisdom of a mortal king and yet there is a far greater king here and he's in your own town. You don't have to go anywhere. I'm coming to where you are and you will not listen. What a shame for the people of Israel. 
What a shame for the hard hearts who will not receive. How calloused, how sinfully deaf those ears must be to refuse the word of God where it was. They stand in the presence of a king far greater than Solomon, and they will not hear his words. Actually, the same principle is in play in verse 32. Uh, You remember Jonah's evangelistic outreach. It was a single-point sermon. He began to go into the city of Nineveh a day's journey, and he began to proclaim, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. No application. No altar call. No commitment cards for those who want to make a decision for Yahweh. There was none of that. He came and he preached cold, hard judgment, and he went outside of the city to sit under a bush and to watch the fireworks. And he left them to figure it all out. And what did they do? They repented. Verse 32 says they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Actually, from the least of them to the greatest, Jonah tells us. They put on sackcloth. They proclaimed a fast. Jonah hadn't told them what to do, but they tried to figure it out the best they could. It even came to the king, and he he proclaimed a declaration. He said, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. What a shame for the men of Jesus' day. Jonah, the foot-dragging prophet, barely breathed out a sermon and revival broke out. And Jesus has been preaching faith and repentance in their villages now for going on two years. And their hearts are so hard that they do not hear. They will not believe. They refuse to repent. What a shame for the men in the crowds of Jesus' day. Yet notice that Jesus is saying there's something far worse than being shamed by Gentiles and women who are more receptive than all the leading men of Israel of his day. Something far worse than that. It's the condemnation that's going to come upon these hard-hearted hearers at the close of history. Notice that Jesus says, the queen of the south and the men of of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment. They're going to be there on the last day. They're going to stand as as eyewitnesses. They're going to say, well, when the word came to us, we heard. When the word came to us, we repented. But not them. Not the men who heard Jesus preaching. They'll be there as witnesses. They will heap upon them the condemnation that is coming to them for their hard-hearted hearing. And they're going to receive greater judgment for having rejected the wisdom of God through the preaching of Jesus. Dear friends, what is the Queen of Sheba going to say about you on the last day? What will the men of Nineveh have to witness against you, perhaps? If the people who heard Jesus speak had a wealth of wisdom right there speaking to to them, we have an abundance, an embarrassment of riches. We come weak. After week, we hear God speak to us out of his word. Every time we come to the table, we proclaim his death until he comes again. We can hold God's word in our hand. We can hide it in our hearts. And is it possible that we come week after week, year after year, month after month, and we still refuse to repent? Is it possible that we too would not hear? That they would stand in judgment over us? Dear friends, God's prophet is speaking to you through his word. God's king is calling. 
Do not listen with deaf ears, with hard hearts. Jesus condemns hard-hearted hearing, just like he condemns superficial sign-seeking. Now, in the remaining verses, Christ calls us to action. He's described two of the ways that unbelief takes hold in our hearts, and, and now he gives us a warning. What can we do to, to fight against obstinate unbelief in our own lives? And here he gives us a call. He, he calls us to action, gives us a command. What he commands us to is clear-eyed examination. I really wanted to get my alliteration right there. I couldn't. Uh, but this is, this is what it actually means, though. This is what he's calling us to, to see ourselves clearly, to examine ourselves clearly. Jesus commands us to push against unbelief through clear-eyed examination. As we look at the closing verses of our passage, they may seem puzzling at first. Jesus is employing his usual tactic. He's teaching us spiritual truth, but he's using everyday objects. He's talking about lamps. He's talking about eyes. He's talking about what it means to live uh, in the darkness rather than uh, in the light. And that is clear enough, except for the fact that Jesus never comes back around at the end. He never circles back around to explain to us these metaphors that he's using. Not like when he was uh, doing the, uh, the parable of the soils and his disciples came and they said, but what, what do you mean about this? And oh, well, uh, this soil means that. And, that's, and he doesn't do that here. And, and it's also not uh, like Luke chapter 18 where Luke introduces the passage by telling us uh, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Okay, that's pretty clear. There's none of that here. This passage just sort of gets tacked on the end, there, there's no explanation, there's no introduction, and that can make it seem like this passage is harder to understand than it actually is. But actually the placement here, the context is our best clue for understanding what Jesus uh, means when he talks about the lamp and the eye and, and all of the rest. Think about it, Jesus is concluding this, this extended response to people who were rejecting his ministry. He had clearly displayed the power of God, and wicked men blasphemed his name, and they demanded more miracles in order to validate his claim. And now he closes his defense with two parables. Two short statements. One, about how light enters a room, and the other, about how light enters a person. Verse 33 is the first one. He says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket. Of course not. That's absurd. Nobody would do that, especially if you live in first century Israel and it begins to get dark and you still have to sew and you have to wash and you have to mill and you have to work and you need some sort of light and all you have on hand are just a few little oil lamps the size of your palm perhaps and so you're going to put them in the best possible place so you can keep doing what you need to do. Lights are for lighting, for, for giving light so others can see what they need to do. And so that's what a lamp is for. You put it where it can be seen. Okay, but what about verse 34? He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Actually, this is another issue altogether. He's changing the, uh, the picture here. One Sunday, one Mother's Day, actually, when I was in high school, all the youth group boys were tasked with uh, the job of standing at the end, uh, the back of the church, and handing out little packages of peanut brittle to all of the mothers, all the women who came through uh, the receiving line at the, the end of the church service. And so I was there with 
uh, with uh, the other young men. And that was the Sunday that I met for the first time Miss Nancy Fox, a wonderful dear woman in our congregation. At that point, she was probably in her late 70s. I'd never met her before. And she came through the line like everybody else. She was walking there with her husband. And I said, hello. And I said, happy Mother's Day. And she said, oh, uh, thank you. Uh, and she looked in the other direction like I wasn't even there. And so I, I held out the package of peanut brittle. As it says uh, in Judges, I waited until I was embarrassed. I held it out a little further. I said, would you like some peanut brittle? She said, oh, yes, that'd be wonderful. And she put out her hands. And, and that was the moment that I re realized that Miss Nancy was completely blind. I'd never met her before. I, I didn't, she sat on the other side of the congregation. I had no idea. It wouldn't have mattered if I took the peanut brittle and I held it six inches from her face and I, I put a spotlight on it. She couldn't see it. She didn't have uh, the receptivity to see what was in front of her. And Jesus is saying there are some people who come to his preaching and to his gospel just like that. You can shine all the light you want to shine and they're not going to see it. Luke chapter 1. Zechariah, at the birth of John the Baptist, blessed the mercy of God, whereby, he said, the sunrise would dawn, dawn upon the people from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Not long after, Luke chapter 2, Simeon did a very similar thing. He held Jesus in his hands in the temple and he rejoiced that his eyes had seen the salvation of the Lord prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to his people Israel. You see, in Jesus, God was shining the light of his salvation for all of his people to see. He wasn't putting it under a basket. He wasn't hiding it behind some false claim, some sort of figure-it-out, whodunit sort of mystery. He was putting it out there. They could see it. The evidence was there. The light was shining. Jesus didn't hide his candle in the closet. He preached in the synagogues. He preached in the public squares. He preached in every home, even the homes of the Pharisees where he was invited. He proclaimed the gospel everywhere he went. He shed the light of the gospel everywhere he went. And when he came preaching good news and performing great signs, his own people scoffed and they blasphemed and they refused to listen. Maybe he's got something to do with the devil, they said. Maybe you could show us a few more tricks and we'll believe in you, they said. And if the light is shining and people will not see it, should we conclude that there is a problem with the light or there is a problem with the eyes? Carl Robbins puts it succinctly. He says their problem was not light, but sight. The truth of Jesus was not obscured. It was there for everybody to see, for everybody to hear, for everybody to believe and to repent, and yet they looked for signs. They hardened their hearts. They refused to hear God's word and keep it. That's why I think in verse 35, Jesus has his disciples in mind. He turns and he says, Therefore, Therefore, be careful. Watch out. See to it. See to it that the light that is in you is not actually darkness. That is, what can you do to avoid these sins of obstinate unbelief? What can you do to fight against this, this sort of skepticism? Well, the first thing you do is to examine yourself. 
Examine how you hear God's word, how you approach God's word. He says, be careful. He gives you something to do. Be careful the way that you hear. Friends, do you come to God's word with your reservations and your objections preloaded? Do you come hanging on to the sins that you couldn't bear to part with? And are they clouding your view of what Christ might actually be saying to you? Do you come with that smug sense of self-assurance that God has nothing to tell you that you can't figure out for yourself already? Or rather, do you come to God's word with humility? Do you come understanding your own propensity to lead yourself astray unless the Lord should shepherd you back to himself over and over again, day by day? Do you come to God's word with a willingness to wrestle with your doubts the way that Israel wrestled with the angel at Penuel? Do you come to God's word ready to lay down your self-defenses? Ready to abandon your self-justifications? Ready to submit to his verdict and his promises for you? You come to God's word as a patient comes to a surgeon. Perhaps fearful, knowing that you'll have to be cut open. And yet realizing that the whole purpose of being cut open is so that the surgeon can reach in and remove the cancer of sin and all the tendrils that worm its way throughout your whole body, throughout your whole life. Is that how you come to God's word? Willing to be laid bare, willing to be cut open so that he would seal you back together again and make you whole. Is that how you come? Christ is calling you to examine yourself. Be careful. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness, lest the the light that you think you walk by actually is drawing you away from Christ rather than making you more receptive to him. Be careful how you hear his word. But then after you have examined yourself, the next step is to allow God and his word to examine you. Jesus says that we will be fully bright, verse 36. We will be fully bright when our whole body is full of light with no part dark. He's calling us to open ourselves to the searchlight of his gospel. When you really want to clean your house, and we've used this uh, this illustration recently in Sunday school as we've gone through Romans and seen more of our own sin. You really want to clean your house. You don't do it in the twilight. You don't do it in the darkness. You open the curtains. You turn on the lights. You maybe get down underneath the couch with a flashlight and you look for all the dust bunnies that have crawled back there in the corner where you can't reach so that you can clean everything out. And that's what Christ is calling us to do. To open our lives to his word, to say there's no reservation that I have, there's no corner of my life, there's no dark recess of my heart and of my soul that I will keep from you, but I want you to come into every place and expose my need and expose my sin and show me how much I need of you. Not just that we would examine ourselves, but that we would allow ourselves to be examined by Christ and by his word. If Christ's word is true, there are terrible implications for our lives. It's the scary part, isn't it? What would your life look like? And your relationships and your ambitions and your desires for yourself. What would those things all have to look like if God's word is actually true? Christ is calling us to open ourselves to his examination. To give up our demands for God and to live out his demands for us. He's telling us that the only way to be full of the light of Christ is to let him shine into every recess of your darkened heart. 
He's reminding us that when we do, we'll find that he's the one who came to give sight to the blind, freedom to the captive, light to those who sit in the darkness of death. Dear friends, beware the sin of unbelief. It's not just out there. It's not just in here. It's in your heart. It's nearby you. It's very close at hand. Beware the sin of unbelief and all of our justifications for allowing it to remain. Submit yourself to the examination of Christ and he will give you the light of life. Won't you join me in prayer? Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that you would give us faith in your word. You would give us repentance from our sins. We pray that you would give us life in Jesus Christ. For many, perhaps, it happens in a moment, but it is a process that continues as you sanctify us and draw us further to yourself. Our salvation is accomplished in a moment and fulfilled throughout the ages. And we will see you in the light of your glory. O oh Lord, we pray that you would give us faith to keep us for that day, even as we come to your table. Pray that you would set our hearts in the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Help us to rejoice in you and help us to trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.